I'm Talmadge Boston. Welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore great books and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing David McCloskey, a former CIA analyst who just came out with his first novel, Damascus Station, which General David Petraeus, former director of the CIA, says is the best spy thriller he's ever read. David McCloskey's book came out October 5, 2021, was reviewed in the New York Times November 28, 2021, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on December 1st. Enjoy. But here's, here's the way this incredible write-up by Nicholas Kristof ends. He, he says, McCloskey manages an extraordinarily realistic narrative with plenty of action, and I bet this becomes a movie as well. And here's the last line. I've never known a writer as good at the spy novel as John Le Carre but McCloskey approaches. We're seeing the emergence of a remarkable talent here in Dallas, Texas. So please welcome to the stage, David McCloskey. Thanks, Thomas. All right, now you can learn from me, David. You pretty much have to hold this microphone right in front of your mouth. <laughs> in order to be pick up, you want to say hi to the crowd? Yeah, is, it, is that working? Okay, that's good. You want to say hi to the Yeah. Um, hey, everybody. This is a lot of fun. I, um, I am the alumnus of two very secretive organizations, the Central Intelligence Agency and, and McKinsey. Uh, so this is a very kind of surreal experience to be out in the wild with a book that has my name on it, talking about that book, uh, without anyone in here having to submit a FOIA request to get access to the information. So uh, it's, it's really cool. It's really fun. Um, and I'm really thrilled to be here today. So thank you for inviting me. You bet. Thank you, David. Now, to give you a little background on David, he grew up the son of a seminary professor <laughs> in Minneapolis. He then attended Wheaton College, which is an evangelical liberal arts school in Illinois, that's Billy Graham's alma mater. But then upon graduation, with all that religion in your upbringing and college, you joined the CIA. <laughs> so why did you want to start your career there? Well, it, it does turn out that going to a school like that makes it easier to pass a polygraph to get in. So um, that, that was helpful. Um, but uh, no, in, in, in all seriousness, I... Uh, I actually joined, or I, the guy who ran the Near East Division uh, at the time was, was an alum, randomly. And they came on campus. I was an international relations major. I was 19. Uh, most of my work experience prior to that had been as a cashier at Wendy's. And so when the CIA came knocking, I was really interested in, in hearing them out. Um, and you know, I think I, like many people in college, applied thinking, I'll never hear back. Uh, but I did took the polygraph, got in, and uh, did two summers there in college, and then joined full-time uh, when I graduated. Mm -hmm. Now, Damascus Station is your first novel, though you're now hard at work on the second. I almost finished the first draft, I'm happy to say. Such you are now, drumroll, 
a full-time novelist. <laughs> so what inspired your decision to leave your careers behind, CIA for six years, never mind the college internships, seven years at McKinsey, where, da where David said he was working 80-hour eight, uh, weeks, but you left all that behind to start a new career as a novelist. So what was that change about? <laughs> um, well, it, it was definitely a journey to get to that decision. Um, you know, I, when I left the agency in 2014, I had worked on, on Syria for pretty much the whole time I was there. And uh, for those who don't know, obviously the, the, the country has gone from, you know, kind of protests and, and civil opposition in 2011 to really the collapse of the country, state failure, um, and, and it's broken into four pieces. Over a half million people have died. Uh, 12 million people have been either displaced internally or fled the country. Uh, and hundreds of thousands have, have disappeared into uh, detention centers run by the regime. And so watching that happen and having spent time there, lived there, worked on it for such a long period of time, it was a very emotional experience. And um, when I left the agency, I had a few months in between kind of uh, that departure and joining McKinsey. And I was really looking for a way, I think, to process some of that emotion. Uh, and I started to write. And it was a very unstructured process. Uh, I found that I really enjoyed it, though. Just sitting there in front of the computer writing uh, was, was cathartic. And uh, you know, I think looking back on that now, what, what I did was completely commercially unsaleable. No one in this room would have wanted to buy that thing. Uh, it was totally unstructured. You know, there's no plot. But it was a way to kind of build character sketches and to, to deal with what I'd, what I'd lived through and, and witnessed. Um, joined McKinsey, fast forward five years, and I had an opportunity for a whole bunch of reasons to spend a lot more time writing for about seven months. And uh, I came back to that. Uh, manuscript and, and promptly threw it away, uh, but knew I wanted to do something that looked at Syria, looked at the CIA, and I just loved writing so much that I thought, I'm going to give this a shot and try to write something that, you know, I want to write and that others might want to read. Well, while you're in real time with the CIA, working in, in and around Syria, was there an aha epiphany moment when you said, my God, this could be a novel? You know, honestly, no. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think it took some time to go from that sort of um, like very kind of emotional, unstructured writing where it was really, I, I, was, I thought of myself as the only audience for that. And, and maybe my poor wife, Abby, would read it because uh, she'd be interested, but like no one else, you know. Um, I think it was after that period of time working at uh, McKinsey, doing consulting, kind of just being away from it, that when I came back to it, because I had just loved the process of writing so much, um, I thought, you know, I, let's see what I can do with this. And I, and I did think that I had some interesting characters, that there was an interesting story to be told, and that the setting of Syria, especially in the early years of the war that I had lived through, um, would be a fascinating backdrop for a novel. But it, but it took time, and it certainly wasn't that aha moment never happened when I was actually at the CIA. Well, now, as in all great spy thriller novels, your main character, Sam Joseph, goes from one death-defying, threatening situation to another constantly. I'm curious, during your CIA career, were you ever in 
what you thought was a life-threatening, highly dangerous situation? Not really. Um, I, um, <laughs> but you have a good imagination. I do have a good imagination. Um, uh, I, you know, the, the, the answer to the question is no. Um, there were periods, I, so when I was in Damascus, there were periods of time where, um, and it was before the war, but that embassy had no setback from the road and it had been targeted multiple times by Al-Qaeda, um, but there was no, never any threat reporting when I was there, and it was something that was in the back of our minds, but not something that, you know, we were thinking about day to day. Well, were there any CIA agents during the time you were in it who had multiple death-defined experience? Because you've described what was going on in Syria, and as I read your book, I thought, that's like living in hell. I mean, were there other, were there CIA people who were killed or almost killed while you were involved in it? So, um, in 2009, there was an attack on uh, Camp Chapman in Afghanistan by a Jordanian uh, triple agent who was working for Al-Qaeda, and, and seven CIA officers were killed. Um, I wasn't working on Afghanistan. I wasn't in country at the time. Um, but, you know, there, there's a memorial wall in the agency's headquarters that has stars on it for each officer that's died um, in, in service. And uh, many of those stars don't have names next to them uh, up on the wall because it's still not publicly available information that, that they worked for the CIA, um, but the agency takes that very seriously, and, and it did happen when I when I was working there. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the, the your writing process. Uh, I knew I'm not a spy thriller reader kind of person. The only fiction I historically read is that written by lawyers. <laughs> but uh, I have friends who love spy thrillers, and as soon as I put this out, it was like a chain reaction. So there's, there's obviously an incredible audience. And one of my favorite sayings is to be a great writer, you got to be a great reader. So how long have you been reading spy thrillers? Uh, really ever since I was a kid. Um, my, my dad is an avid consumer of the, of the genre. So um, we always had them in the house. I mean, a lot of my uh, memories of, of, being with my dad at bookstores or at libraries, and, and he would introduce me to these writers. Um, so I started reading it, you know, very young. Um, I actually stopped reading spy novels for a while when I joined the CIA because it's, uh, you kind of realize after two days at the agency that none of them are even close to the real job, and you start to get, you know, a bit consumed with that comparison. But, um, you know, when I left the agency, I, I, I picked up reading again uh, and, and really read voraciously again in the genre um, when I started to write the book. So you've been away from the agency now, what, about eight or nine years. What percentage of your reading now is devoted to reading spy thrillers? Um, I'd say probably 80%. Uh, I always try to have something on the nightstand that's not a spy thriller, but it, it's a lot of what I read and... Um, after having written one, it does take a little bit of the fun out of it because you kind of, I spend time analyzing how, the, how they put the plot together, you know, why they make this decision uh, about the character, for example. But, um, you know, it, it's a lot of what I read uh, at this point. Well, your, your work per Nicholas Kristof has been compared to John le Carre. Are there others who you try to emulate or are you pretty much trying to create your own path and do a, a unique presentation of spy thrillers? Well, I, I certainly think I'm trying to say something that's different from what others uh, in the genre are writing or saying. Um, but, you know, I think in terms of 
writers that I that I look up to uh, and that I think about when I write. I mean, uh, it, it's hard to talk about spy fiction without talking about Le Carre. Um, I love the work of Charles McCary, who's a um, not so well-known American spy novelist who should be better known. Um, I love the work of David Ignatius, uh, Daniel Silva, um, Martin Cruz Smith. Um, you know, I, I read all this stuff when I was when I was growing up and, and, and still do. Um, but when I th and Jason Matthews is another one. He has a wonderful trilogy of books called the Red Sparrow Trilogy that's pretty close to what I'm trying to do as well. When we talk about the CIA. So um, those are some of the names I think about. Yeah. Now, I'm always intrigued when I encounter somebody who both he and his wife are writers. So David's wife, Abby, is here. Abby does not write spy thrillers. She writes wonderful op-ed pieces for the Dallas Morning News. If you ever see one of her columns, stop, read it. You'll learn something. It's wonderful. Amen but, to that. But yeah. she's also written Wall Street Journal, New York Times, National Review, National Affairs. So a lot of husband and wives are able to at least semi-collaborate when one's writing a book. Were you and Abby able to do that during the process? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, she she had either the, the the luck or the misfortune of reading dozens and dozens of versions of this of this manuscript, and not only um, reading them, but being really a partner in constructing plot and character and, and talking about choices uh, about the book. And um, she's the the first reader of everything. Uh, you know, the champion of it, and really a co like I said in the in the uh, dedication, really a co-conspirator in, in the whole the whole process in the book. So. Love you, babe. <laughs> Don't miss Abby's reading, uh, writing. I'm just sorry you're not writing a book. I'd love to read one of your books. All right, well, the, the plot we, for Damascus Station, like all great spy thrillers, is highly complicated, uh, with the characters always trying to be one step ahead of each other. So what's your process for creating such an incredible plot like you have in this novel? It was really hard, um, <laughs> and uh, it took a lot of work to kind of twist everything together. Um, you know, I think I, I started with I started with an outline that was pretty rough. Um, after about a week of writing, that whole outline got blown up, and I had to start over. Um, but what I really ended up doing was uh, investing heavily in the characters and and thinking a lot about what they wanted and why they wanted it. And then I would drive them forward in the story based on that and kind of let that guide the plots in a lot of respects. So, you know, there were certain directions that I would try to push them. Uh, and, and there was there's a scene at the end of this book um, that I had had in my mind from the very beginning when I had started writing and started outlining a very hopefully climactic scene that has all the main characters in one place. And uh, I wanted that scene. Um, and so I drove the characters as much as I could, or they drove me in some respects, uh, to get to that, to get to that point. But I kind of let the characters and their motivations uh, be the guide. And I really did pick um, multiple kind of points of view to tell the story from, so you could see as the as the reader how the different, you know, the the New York Times review I think captured it well. It's kind of a cat on cat on cat situation where there's three main characters who are really all trying to to you know, get the better of one another, um, figure out what the other person's up to. And I, I let that kind of tripod, I think, be the guide for the book. Mm -hmm. 
Now, when a, when a former CIA analyst writes a novel about a CIA agent in a country where the CIA is very active, what's the process for getting CIA authorization through the CIA Publication Review Board to allow it to be published? Yeah, um, well, so I, there's paperwork that I signed on the last day that I was at the agency that uh, it was very long and complicated and they promptly took it away because they said I couldn't take it out of the building with me. But I signed it and they told me that in that paperwork it says, you know, basically until the day I die, anything I write will have to go through the, the Publication Review Board. Um, you know, they were pretty fast in reviewing my novel. Um, I like to think that's because the reader must have really enjoyed it. But they were, they were pretty efficient with getting through it. And um, I had done a bit of homework, too, in that I had put like 300 footnotes in, in uh, the manuscript to say, here's where I got this information. I had kind of self-edited, to some respects, you know, things that I knew I couldn't or shouldn't say out of it. Um, so when it came back, you know, it, it, they hadn't marked up too much at the end of the day. Um, but the, the best part of dealing with the Publication Review Board, actually, is that, you know, I sent the document to them, and it was a, it was a Word document. I think it was probably in Times New Roman, normal kind of structure. And uh, it came back, and it was in all caps, uh, in, a, in a very large PDF, and then everything they took out, it had a black highlighter kind of through it. And so it looked like it was out of a time machine from like 1965. <laughs> um, it was kind of very fun. So I still have the, I still have that document, uh, and it's actually the, the background on 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 my website is like an inverted version of that because it kind of looks like a real thing. So, it, but the the bottom line is they're they're reasonable and and they were very uh, I think reasonable with the manuscript. But they did take at least some parts out for national security reasons or whatever the reasons yeah, they, might have been? They did, yeah. They, they edited out, um, you know, sentences here and there or specific locations that I couldn't talk about and things like that. Some, some things were pretty bizarre uh, that they took out, uh, but, yeah, it, it, they did end up removing some, some, some stuff. Now, a huge boost for any author, particularly a first-time author, is getting dust jacket endorsements from you know, internationally known people who are highly respected. And of course, on the front of your book, you have this incredible quote from David Petraeus, the best spy novel I have ever read. And then on the back, you've got Leon Panetta, David Ignatius. Uh, I mean, you're a good guy from Dallas, Texas. How do, how do you go about getting endorsements from people like that? Uh, I wrote a lot of letters. Um, honestly, when I when I started or when the book had been sold and when we were starting the kind of marketing process um, I really with most of these folks didn't actually have a personal connection uh, some of the agency officers I did but but a lot of the names you just mentioned I didn't and uh, you know I thought uh, the CIA is a pretty strong uh, there's there's a, a lot of sort of connection between officers and a sense of kind of fraternity after you leave and uh, you know, I felt as a member of that that I would ask uh, if, if folks would read it. And uh, I was very, very lucky. I sent letters to, to Petraeus and to Panetta, and, um, you know, they, they read it and, and offered those kind blurbs. So I just kind of, I just reached out to, to see what would happen. I mean, do you know, are there several other former CIA uh, employees who try to write novels? Or, or are you kind of a rare uh, part of the species? 
I, there's, there's a few out there. Um, but most agency officers, if they, if they leave and write something, it, it tends to be nonfiction. There are a lot of memoirs written about time in the agency. Um, fewer, I think, try, try fiction. Um, and I, I just never wanted to write anything nonfiction about, about Syria after I left. I didn't feel like I had the energy for it, but the, the book gave me a lot of energy to write about it from a different angle. Well, on the one hand, you say you didn't really want to write nonfiction. On the other hand, there are several parts of your book which seem to match up almost identically with things that actually uh, did happen. So uh, what was your process for, for deciding when to inject truth as opposed to when to create fiction? Yeah, uh, well, I knew from, from the standpoint of the setting, uh, you know, in, in Syria and in the war, um, I knew that I wanted to set the book in those first couple years, so like 2011 to 2013. And while I don't, the book isn't dealing in a chronology of like this happened in this month, and the, you know, but it's the start of the book feels like the beginning of the unrest and the end of the book feels like the start of what you really call the Civil War. And I, I was interested in getting that feel right and in putting a few events in the book that really did happen in real life. Um, so I, I wanted to do that, but when we get to maybe something like the spycraft, for example, um, there were there are things in there that are very very real, and then other things that I completely made up, um, mostly because it was fun to do that, and it's, you know it felt like sort of the the license of fiction that I, if I got to a point where I you know the reality of CIA process or tradecraft, you know it sort of reached its limits, I could just make something up. So that was freeing. Well, well, let's go through some of those and you can, that are in the book, and you can tell us which are real and which you made up. Do they really come up with these ridiculous CIA funny names? <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll explain what a, a funny name is uh, first. So if you're, if you're undercover at the Central Intelligence Agency, um, your email and, and your name on official documentation is not going to be your actual name. It's going to be a name that, and I've heard this, uh, I'm not sure if it's apocryphal, but I put it in the book because I thought it was too delicious not to. I've heard that there was a, a phone book from the 1950s, a British phone book, that the CIA took and they created a computer program that basically spits out these names uh, and that are then given to officers. So your name would be a first name, a middle initial, and then a last name, uh, all in caps, the last name would be, and that's called a, a funny name. And um, I give a few of the characters in the book pretty ridiculous funny names, but the funny, any, any kind of name like that is going to be cl a classified piece of information. And I couldn't put any real ones in the book, but the real ones are actually, they can be quite insane. Because if you take, if a weird program is taking fragments of information and churning out a name, you end up with names that like, you read it and you're like, I don't know what nationality that sounds like. I'm not even sure if it's a male or female name. Like, they can be really bizarre. Uh, and some of them actually um, are so suggestive that there's actually a process to go through to get a new funny name. Because if you get one, you know, you could be attached to that for 30 years during your career. And, uh, and some of these are a little bit too weird that you just wouldn't want to be associated with it. All right. So that's, that's true. That's very real. Okay. <laughs> Another one of these tidbits, testing bombs on cadavers. <laughs> um, so I made, I made that up. Um, okay. okay. I, uh, <laughs> there's, without giving too much, 
too much away. There's a plot thread in the book where the, the CIA, which amazingly was not removed by the CIA's publication review board, as a side note, uh, where the CIA is constructing a um, car bomb that they're going, they're going to fit into a speaker in a Mitsubishi. They're going to bring it into Syria, and they're going to attempt to, to kill someone with this bomb. Um, the CIA, what is true is that the CIA goes through very rigorous uh, bomb design and testing, you know, dozens and dozens of, uh, of tests, um, which I talk about in the book. Uh, but then as I was writing that scene, I, I, and, and you know, the, the CIA has built this kind of mock-up of the street in Damascus at a, at a site here in the, in the United States. They're testing it. And I thought, well, you know, if we're going to figure out what kind of impact this bomb would have on, like, pedestrians nearby, maybe I just make up that, you know, there's, there's, they wheel out cadavers and see what the bomb does to them. And it had a, um, an EOD tech, so a bomb tech, actually read the chapter. And he was like, you know this is insane, right? We would never, we would never do this. Uh, and, and I said, I, I know, but I'm going to keep it in anyway. <laughs> so that's, that, that part's false. Well, here's another one. A hot dog machine at Langley. <laughs> um, Imagine going to a vending machine and getting a hot dog. So I have, yeah, so that's true. Um, they really have a hot dog yeah, the hot dog machine is probably the number one most asked about tidbit in Damascus Station because it seems so insane. So there, in, the, in the Langley basement, um, and I remember seeing it for the first time. I was working very late. It was probably one or two in the morning, and I was walking down this hallway with a colleague, and I'd just been there for a few months. And I remember seeing a machine uh, that had the words Hormel on it. And uh, there was a, a, a gentleman loading these large plastic, like, reams of hot dogs in there. And I thought it was a mirage, to be honest, because to this day, I've never seen a hot dog machine anywhere else in the world um, other than Langley. But there is one there. Um, you know, if you're pretty desperate, they taste, they taste okay. Uh, but that's a very real thing, that it's, that it's there. <laughs> you, you do, that's true. Now, your spy thriller has a love story in the middle of it. So why did you go there? <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the love story in this novel is between a CIA case officer, Sam, and uh, a Syrian uh, asset uh, named Mariam. And Tell what an asset is. Uh, yeah, so um, if you read, this is one, one side note, if you read a lot of uh, spy novels or if you read reviews of spy novels, you'll often oftentimes see CIA officers referred to as CIA agents. There's no such, there's a CIA officer, the American CIA, like the person who works for the CIA would never be called an agent. That, that title doesn't, doesn't exist. You're, you're an intelligence officer, you're an analyst, you're a case officer, never the agent. The agent is the, the foreigner who is stealing information for the CIA and then passing that to the case officer. Um, so the you know, agent and asset are sort of interchangeably used to describe that that foreign recruit who is providing information. Um, but, I, but I really, uh, I was very interested in the book in dealing with, uh, like I said, kind of the, the real authentic CIA. I mean, I made up some stuff like we talked about, but um, I was very interested in, in portraying the real day-to-day -day work of a CIA case officer. And, um, you know, what they do, unlike in the movies, they don't run around uh, typically with guns, you know, shooting things up. What they're in the business of doing is, is spotting and developing and recruiting uh, assets to, to 
take information from foreign governments and provide it to us. Um, and that dynamic of recruiting somebody to, to steal information um, is, is fascinating to me. There's so much sort of human drama and intrigue uh, and, and manipulation involved there. And it's a very intimate relationship uh, because that person who's being recruited is, is you know, they're committing treason on, on, on your behalf and their deepest, darkest secrets are known by the case officer. Um, and so there's a lot of intimacy there. But to your question around the love story, you know, I thought already in that relationship between a agency officer and an asset, there was just so much potential energy. Why not add some romantic energy too, which it's a tremendously, you know, it's a, it's a terrible rule to break. Um, but I thought there would, there would just be so much drama there by layering in the, the love story that I just couldn't, I couldn't resist. It does add a lot of energy. It's a terrific part of the story. It really, I think, makes it that much more appealing. So I think that was a good decision. All right. David, how do you want readers of Damascus Station to fill in the blank in this sentence? I think you'll enjoy Damascus Station because blank. Hard question. Um, I think you'll enjoy Damascus Station because it's a, um, it is at once a, a propulsive, character-driven spy novel. Um, and it's also, at the time, and I think you won't even realize it as, as you read, um, an education in the CIA, not just tradecraft, but its moral code, its culture. Um, and in and in the Syrian war, so I, I hope that you know people enjoy it because they want to flip the pages, but they also get into it and realize that they're learning something about this very important institution, the officers that work there, uh, and and the Syrian war. For my last question, I mentioned you're now uh, working on your second novel. Tell us a little bit about it and when you think it'll be coming out. Yeah, so the. The next novel is not actually a sequel to Damascus Station. There's, there are a few characters that, that overlap and it's kind of the same universe, but um, I decided to try my hand at writing something on Russia. Um, turns out the Russians turn out a lot of real stuff that works for spy novels, so um, <laughs> I, I've been having fun with that. It, um, it really focuses on, to put it a little bit colloquially, um, what it would look like if we got serious about sticking it to Putin. And so I've been examining that question in the context of kind of the next phase of the U.S.-Russia spy war um, and what's going on between Washington and Moscow. So it, it's been fun. And, and Putin's a character in the book, which has also been, been fun to do. Oh, yeah. Um, probably the winter, like next winter. So a year-ish from now will be my guess. Okay. Uh, it's noon. David, I'm going to tell you to go back to that table. So you'll be there ready to sign more books. And I hope that from hearing what he said, you're thinking on your Christmas list. We want to make sure Interabang uh, has their time well spent. And we sell the rest of those books. So, David, go there now because otherwise okay. you're going to get mobbed on the stage. <laughs> Thank you, honestly, for having me. This has been a ton of fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you. After reading David McCloskey's terrific new spy thriller, I join in Nicholas Kristof's assessment that David, in his first novel, is such a remarkable talent that his work approaches the level of excellence as John Le Carre. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts 
at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.